We have the privilege this morning of hearing from one of our missionaries. We periodically have that privilege to hear from those who we support. And one of the things that is great uh, is that we have missionaries that are able to serve and we support them from various backgrounds, some of whom come from our own church. They were part of us and have gone out, and as such, they are part of the family. This morning, we have the privilege of hearing from Craig Pohl, who, while didn't go out from us, is nevertheless still part of our family as the son of Jan and, and Ron Pohl in our church. And so Craig also and his family are part of our family. That's why we chose to, we were blessed this morning to have Craig's son, uh, daughter, uh, Carice, uh, bless us with the offertory. We don't usually bring ringers in, but she's part of the family. So, uh, but this morning as Craig comes, he's going to share with us about his work in Chile and then bring us the word of God. So Craig, if you come and uh, lead us in this portion of our worship. Good morning, and uh, thanks to your pastors and, and staff and session and the whole congregation. It's a privilege uh, to be here today. Uh, we're wrapping up a brief seven-week visit uh, to the United States, which started in Williamsburg and and uh, is ending here as well as we visit churches, um, supporting churches and individuals and families uh, from here to the Midwest and back. Um, it's the first service we brought our own groupies. It's been a privilege to worship this morning with my brother and, and sister-in-law and their three children, and of course with mom and dad, and um, be able to share with various home groups uh, here of um, Grace Covenant as well. And thank you then, thank you for your prayers, thank you for your support. I have a quiz, though, for you this morning. What historic event occurred exactly two dozen years ago in Williamsburg on this weekend? Does anybody know? You graduated. Bingo, bingo. <laughs> That's right. By hook or by crook, by some means, uh, I was able to graduate from William & Mary and uh, you know, picked international relations as my major, which is the only major where you don't really have to pick any, you know, you can pick the easiest classes, the most fun classes. Um, got to walk across campus. And congratulations to any graduates and their families who might be here this morning. I know Isaiah graduated, and I think there might be one or two others, and so the Lord bless you in your uh, service to him as you go on to the next thing in life. And we're blessed to be able to serve with Mission to the World, which is the foreign mission board of the Presbyterian Church in America. We spent nine years serving in Ecuador, uh, halfway down, or partway down the South American continent, then uh, three and a half years ago moved to, Sun, to Chile, um, a little bit further down the Pacific coast of South America. We first lived in Viña del Mar on the ocean, um, and uh, two years ago moved to Santiago, the capital, about five, no, seven million people or so in the Santiago metro area, so a small place, and um, we love it there. The Presbytery uh, is a new Presbytery, a new denomination, uh, standing on its own feet for just about five years now. And one of the, one of the first meetings I had with the Presbyters, they likened themselves to um, that, that new group of churches to uh, a small jet taking off with uh, one wing uh, of their ministry being church planting and the other wing being leadership training. And in that meeting, I saw two pastors approved for ordination and just saw some movement in life. And um, so that's what sort of attracted us in our hearts to Chile. And we're glad to be putting down some roots there after three and a half years. Um, 
I'm directing the Reformed Theological Academy there, which is sort of like uh, more than Sunday school and less than seminary, um, training a broad group of uh, lay leaders to support the church planting work in the country, as well as a pastoral track for um, right now two, but Lord willing, in the next year or so, six uh, pastoral candidates. Um, so pray for them and pray for us in that leadership training. Stacy is a trained teacher and uh, is also participating in teaching Christian education courses, which has been a huge blessing to the churches and also now to the, the academy as well as she teaches there some. So we're privileged to assist with a church, not really a church plant, it's an established church, but it's growing in the areas. We're all in the music ministry, that's why Karis was singing in English and Spanish. There, somebody asked me the first word, what, what language was that? I thought it was English, but my ears were failing, you know, so that was Spanish. I might teach, uh, teach or preach in tongues here this morning, and if I do, then you know, either Camper or Dennis can interpret. Next week, they'll tell you what I said. Um, or make something up, you know, tell something better. So thanks again for your prayers. Thank you for your financial support, your sacrificial giving. It allows us to be your hands and feet in another part of the world uh, that we call Chile. We're going to start today in Luke chapter 5 as to see what we can learn from our teacher, our master, our Lord. So if you would turn there with me. A crowd uh, and a few of Jesus' followers had uh, started gathering, and it all started that day at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It was a typical day, yet something rather unique, something kind of surprising was brewing on that day. That would have a huge impact on several people's lives, and I hope that the teaching from it will also impact our hearts and lives today. So keep your Bibles open there at Luke 5, chapter, uh, verse 1, and let's pray together as we begin and open the Word. Pray with me. Father, bless us with your grace this morning and your mercy. Our hearts well up with praise to you, and we ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to your Word. Would you transform us by it through the work of your spirit? And might you use me, your servant, to speak uh, words truly and clearly and in a helpful way, Lord, for us all. Uh, may we hear you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was March 31st, 1998, and it was an average day. Nothing out of the ordinary. I got up, probably had a bowl of Cheerios, which is my custom, for breakfast, went on my way to seminary in St. Louis, came home in the afternoon to study and read, and um, as always, checked my email inbox, which was, for those of you that are you know, younger than me, probably a pretty cool thing in those days. It was kind of new. Um, now it's old hat. I noticed a letter there from a friend who lived in Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa. And I had met her about four years back at a training event. And um, we had corresponded on and off, talked on the phone once in a while. And I read this letter with particular interest because it was just so animated, all the details. And it just popped out at me describing a week of her vacations on the coast of Kenya on the Indian Ocean for spring break. She was a teacher there in Africa. She told me about a curious camel race that occurred on Easter Sunday morning on the beach even sent me an attached photo, and that was really new technology in those days. Um, talked about mis the mischievous antics of monkeys who stole the Pringles from their hands and uh, baboons who were bold enough to go into their um, hotel rooms and mess things up a little bit. And my friend's letter was written in such a way that it made me feel right there. 
So March 31st, 1998 started out just like any other typical day, but this virtual visit from my friend changed my life for good, for the better. My friend's name was Stacy, and that letter started a long-distance romance that lasted and ended up a couple of years later in us getting hitched and uh, to the best woman in the world. Why would I tell you this? Today's passage starts just like any other day, but had a huge impact. It was a typical day for that time and place. Just a few fishermen having worked all night by the shore, washing their nets, putting their equipment away. But on that day, the life of at least one person was about to be turned upside down, or you might say right side up. Let's read it together in Luke 5, 1 to 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesenet, that's Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So it was pretty typical by that time in Jesus' ministry to start to being surrounded by crowds of people. He was getting a bit more popular. That was becoming commonplace. But what's not real normal to me about this passage is what's missing. What is Luke not telling us? What did Jesus say that day? Can you, can, do, you know the, do we know the content of his, of his teaching? It's kind of missing. How did the people react? Were they surprised but pleased by what he taught or disgusted and offended? We don't know, do we? Where did they go? They just disappear after verse 3. So why the mystery? I think because the focus isn't on the crowds or on what Jesus taught that day, but on what? On one particular encounter that he was going to have. An encounter between a fisherman from Galilee and a carpenter from Nazareth. If you want the attention of a fisherman, what better thing than to ask to use his boat for a pulpit? Uh, my brother, who was here in the first service, is a mechanical engineer. If you wanted his attention and his undivided attention, you might just plop yourself down in front of his monitor on his desk and start talking to him. That would probably you know, interrupt his day. Same sort of thing here for Peter. They weren't strangers. They had met on at least two occasions. Uh, Andrew, Peter's brother, as soon as he met Jesus, what did he do? He took him to uh, meet Jesus. We find out about that in John chapter 1, where actually Jesus gives him a new name, too. If we got these three names confused, it's all the same person. Simon is Peter, and that's the uh, Greek name for another name, which is uh, Cephas, which is Aramaic, right? So all three of the same people. God gave him that new name, the rock. Jesus also had met Peter when? When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, when she had a high fever, which uh, Luke tells us in, his, in chapter 4. So they're not strangers, but I don't think they're best buds yet either. But they're going to get to know each other a lot better in a conversation they're about to have. Let's read together in verses 4 and 5. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word... I will let down the nets. Okay, so it's a carpenter's suggestion to do another day of shipping, do a double, you know, do a double shift. He's, he's fished all night, he's tired, caught nothing. Peter's probably thinking, this guy doesn't have a clue, he might be a good teacher, but I don't think he knows fishing. 
What's Peter's reply? It's a bit reluctant, yes, but respectful still, right? He calls him master, which would be like teacher or professor. What does he say? We fished all night and caught nothing, but at your word, I'll do it. Everything he knew, his experience, his desire to get some rest said no, but I think there was a certain newfound personal trust or commitment or respect that was growing for Jesus. So from this private exchange between Jesus and Peter, I think we can see something here that because Jesus is our Lord and Master too, we must learn to live by faith in his presence. Living and walking and learning to live by faith in Jesus' presence. And if we're honest, I think for all of us in our lives, there are certain times when we certainly lean much more on our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own resources, even on our own worry, than on our master. More likely to follow our inclinations, our own gut feel even, than his voice and his word. We might leave even in parts of our lives have sort of, you know, on target for him, but other parts of our lives just prefer to try to ignore him, try to ignore his presence in sort of a practical atheism. So first, you've heard a lot. For Stacy and I, it's sort of our life verse that we adopted when we got married. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Not easy necessarily, right? But straight, directed by him. Well, life is already starting to change for Peter, and I think it will change for us if we learn to live by faith in his presence. Just by exchanging these few phrases, things are changing. So what's next? How did it turn out? How did he respond? Let's read it together in verses 6 and 7. When they had done this, they enclosed, because they were nets, right? So they captured, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Okay, not one but two boats were need, needed for this catch, right? The nets, the tools they use for their work day in and day out are breaking and both boats are sinking. Okay, so this is the best catch of Peter's life and probably for all of his partners too. Was it just good luck? Was it chance? They hadn't caught anything all night, which was the preferable time to fish. Now by day, they catch the biggest catch of their life, and all this at the suggestion of a carpenter? So there's no natural explanation. This is crazy. What's the reaction of the fishermen? It's, well, it's, you know, according to that. Verses 9 and 10 say, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. As also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Wow. They were astonished. Couldn't believe it. Uh, the words there might mean like astonished or seized or surrounded by astonishment. I honestly think they were a little bit freaked out. Right? I mean, they're both of their ships were sinking, for goodness sake. Right? At this crazy catch of fish when they hadn't caught one all night. That was the general reaction, but how did Peter respond? What did he say? Focuses on him in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It doesn't really say he fell at his feet, which that would be true too, but it says he fell at his knees, which has always given me this image of looking into Jesus' kneecaps. 
sort of a humbling position, right? Shows humility, shows some level of submission, possibly even reverence, or maybe just fear, I don't know. But he addresses them not as the master this time, but what? He says, oh Lord, which certainly uh, directs us to believe it's more than, more respect than you would for a teacher, a professor, oh Lord. And many times in scripture, of course, is used to denote God, deity. Did he know he was God in this instant? I think so. I think so. What is his request? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Okay. Peter, at this point, has no financial brains at all. Okay? Jesus needs to be Peter's fishing partner. With divine sonar like that, he could make millions of dollars, right? Or whatever they had in those days. Right? No sense. And it doesn't have much sense from a spiritual point either. What is what Peter most needs? What do we most need? Forgiveness. Salvation. That's exactly what the Lord can provide for him. He realized, though, too, that in the presence of Jesus' perfection, holiness, righteousness, that there was a huge gap between him and Jesus. Jesus was everything Peter was not, contrast like light and darkness. Peter probably wasn't necessarily any worse than the next guy in the room or in the boat, but any sin is serious business that separates us from a holy God. So I think in this passage, we not only are taught to live by faith in Jesus' presence, but because Jesus is our Lord and Master, we must recognize our true need of him. Are there areas of sin and rebellion in my life today or your life that God in his mercy is pointing out to us? Repentance is a gift from our Lord that we should embrace, right? That helps us to forsake our sin and obedience to cling to him. And that should be our response. We should learn from the anti-example here from Peter today. And when we are caught and we're dirty and we realize our sin before the Lord, um, we don't need to say, Lord, depart from me, I'm sinful. What do we need to say? Lord, have mercy. Don't leave me. Make me clean. Transform my life from the inside out. Every part of me, every day. I think it was uh, the late teacher, discipler Jack Miller, who used this illustration, who said, walking the Christian life is like walking with our two feet. With one foot, we step out in faith, and we obey him in faith. And with the other foot, what do we do when we mess up? We repent. We come back to the cross. And we just keep on doing that. We live by faith. We repent. We live by faith. We repent. And there's an echo here for me from uh, Martin Luther's first thesis of his 95 thesis, the ones that he tacked to the door in Wittenberg. He said in that, when our Lord and Master... Jesus Christ, the same two titles given here. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Not just a one-time deal. That's important. That's that first encounter with Jesus, but it's an everyday, all-the-time thing. Perhaps this is the most important way that we need to recognize our need of him. But if we look in the second half of verse 10, we see Jesus' response. How did he respond to him? Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Literally, stop being fearful. Stop being afraid. 
from now on you will be catching men. Catching men. Remember, they didn't immediately at least kill the fish in those days. They trapped them alive. So that same word gives the idea of you're going to trap men and women alive and declare even more life to them. The God that brought you, Peter, true peace and intimacy and restored relationship with God, that's the God that I want you to announce and help others to learn to live in his presence and to recognize their need of him in faith and repentance. So that was the call. Stop being afraid and go out and start catching men. How did Peter respond? How did he react? It says in verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They did it immediately. That's what Mark tells us. Of course, he tells us that, that we did everything immediately. You know, He would be good in the internet age. It means immediate. But there's no excuses. They left their family, their professions, the catch, two boats, the nets. It's very simplistic. Sorry, it's not fancier than this. But I think the third thing that this passage and even the next one we'll look at is that because Jesus is our Lord and Master, we must follow him. In this case, it's as this carpenter become fisherman telling us that we need to be fishers of men. What is a disciple anyway? What's a good definition of a disciple? One I can think of is simply a follower of Jesus. Was there anything special about these men? I mean, a lot of times we think that disciples have to be something crazy, something super spiritual. They were also sinners. Like you and me, they made a living. Some of them might have come from more simple backgrounds, others from more learned, but like us, there's the same requirements. What are the requirements for being a disciple? What's the job description? What do you have to do to be a disciple of Jesus? I think the three things we're learning in this passage. Learn to walk by faith, recognizing our need of him, repenting of sin, and follow. Faith, repentance, following. Disciples, not a special status, not like an optional extra. Okay, are all the people in the church that want to be disciples, this is your spot to sit, you know, and the rest of us that aren't disciples will be over here. No, it's for all of us following Jesus. Later in Luke 9, he says, And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How are we doing at following Jesus? This would be inconceivable on our own, but completely doable with Jesus. But like Peter, we're a work in progress, aren't we? We're not finished yet. I want to fast forward and just see a couple of other moments from Peter's life that will help us understand how gracious our Lord is in giving us these, this charge. Peter, like us, might have had a roller coaster ride of faith following Jesus. It started with this crazy catch of fish, but it gets more interesting, believe it or not, from there. Peter and we have another thing to learn, another thing or two to learn, and I want us to end up in John 21. But before that, I need to take us on a very brief journey with Peter. So I want to take three, five quick stops in the scriptures, starting in Luke 22. So if you can keep your Bibles open and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Verse 31. So we're fast forwarding to the last week with Jesus. Um, the Passover meal, in fact. And Jesus has something to say to Simon there. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Wow, he was in Satan's crosshairs. Satan wanted to test Peter, wanted to crush Peter. But what does Jesus lovingly say? This is going to happen, Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I read that as ultimately fail. You will persevere because I will be with you. And he also gives another encouraging glimpse. If you read it carefully, it says, when you have turned. What does that mean? When you have turned back to me, when you have repented from your sin, when you have turned, I've got a job for you to do. Go strengthen your brothers. They're going to need that help too. And then he, he um, declares that he will deny him. Peter says, not me. In Mark's gospel, we find out that the rest of them said that too. No, no, we'll never deny you, Lord. And he also says in that gospel, and I will go up before you into Galilee, giving uh, the prediction of where he'll meet them the next time. So a little bit later in the same chapter, in verse 59, we're um, around the fire, kind of timid. They're there hanging on the outskirts of uh, Jesus' pre-trial experience. And after two denials from Peter, we pick it up at the third at verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour, still another person insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him. He too is a Galilean. Verse 60, but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Had you ever noticed that look of Jesus before? I hadn't until um, Michael Card in a commentary pointed it out to me. And the question there is, what kind of a look was it? Was it condemnation? Told you so. Was it compassion? Was it a reminder? I'm kind of with Michael Card and some other authors that I think it was com a compassionate reminder. I think it was saying to you, I told you so, but remember I prayed for you. I prayed that your faith would remain. That you'll be restored and you'll help your brothers eventually. But he went out and wept bitterly, very sorrowful, broken by his sin. So we fast forward past the resurrection. The next time we see Peter in Luke is in Luke chapter 24, verse 10. Actually, I'll pick it up in verse 8. They, the, the ladies who had gone to see the tomb found it empty. and says, they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be an idle tale. They did not believe them. Okay, guys, this is a sidelight. The ladies are usually right, okay? So we need to believe them, especially in the inspired scripture here. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Uh, Peter's not home and sulking anymore. He was curious about this. I think the Lord is starting to work in his heart and his mind. 
Uh, someone reminded me from the earlier service, and I thank them for that, I can't remember who, that in another gospel, uh, when, he, when Jesus addresses the women, he specifically says, go tell Peter, or the apostles, and Peter, makes the point of make sure you tell him too. Which also seems like a very gracious and necessary thing at this point. So the next time here in Luke 24 that we hear Peter talked about, it's a report about him. So you remember the two men that were walking along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus with Jesus, and they didn't understand what had happened, were very sad. Jesus explains it to them. They still don't recognize Jesus for who he is. If we pick it up in verse 28 from chapter 24, it says, So they drew near, the two men, to the village, to where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went out to stay with them. Sorry. He went in to stay with them. And when he, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, This is their report. Watch this. The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Hmm? Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He appeared to Simon? Okay, that's the first time we've heard that. But it gets reiterated in Scripture. Turn with one last passage with me here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And this is a, a text that's sort of a summary of Christian teaching that a lot of people think is an early creed, uh, maybe something used in catechism before baptism or something. But it's a summary of teaching 1 Peter 15, 3, that goes like this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then to the twelve. What? When did he appear to Peter? We don't know. On Easter morning, yes, but when we don't know. Well... I'd pay good money to figure out what they talked about, wouldn't you? Okay, maybe I know. Three guesses. Three guesses. Probably don't need any more than one. Why do we care? Why does it make a difference how we see this next interaction with Peter and John 21 makes a big difference? Um, in an article titled, The Best Epilogue Ever, um, counselor and writer Ed Welch says this, Peter could not max out God's gracious forgiveness with three blatant denials. For us, since three blatant denials equal or beat any of our own top three sins, God's gracious forgiveness certainly extends to our worst sins. As a result, we're justified in hearing Jesus' words as if they were his words to us, and they are. So let's move on to see what the Apostle John writes in this amazing postscript, this, this epilogue to his gospel, what some have called this best epilogue ever, and I think you'll get what I mean. So we can't see every detail here, but in John chapter 21, you see a scene that looks kind of typical for fishermen, right? Let me read the first section of that for us. John 21, remember the story with me. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the same Sea of Galilee, different name. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Hearing anything familiar here? Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, have you any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped to work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what's going on here? What was that last command that he gave Peter in Luke 5? Don't fear, I will make you fishers of men, right? You'll be catching men. So he went to Galilee. They went to Galilee ahead of Jesus, following the instructions given by the angels. That was good. But they started fishing again. For men? No, for fish. They were back to their old profession. I think they thought, you know, it's all over. What's done is done. But what was different? How enthusiastic was Peter to see Jesus? He was pretty excited, you know? He was hopped off that boat and swam right to him. If they had not yet been in a restored relationship, I don't think he would have done that. I think the Lord restored him in that private meeting that they had. So what's this meeting about? Well, they started having a meal together. A meal even today for us is fellowship, it's friendship, it's... It's communion, one with another. And especially in the Middle East, it's almost, it can take even on almost sacramental tones of we are in relationship. This is, we are good. We're back on track. All of them had forsaken the Lord, not just Peter. And this was a meal together saying, we're good. We're in a restored relationship. This is, I'm learning to walk with him less than 956. Hopefully they get it this time. God takes both our sin away and our shame away. We're not just legally right with him, we're relationally right. We're really okay. God doesn't just tolerate us. He delights in us when we are forgiven in his son. There's full forgiveness and real fellowship. There is this um, sort of wall-hanging little plaque, homemade in the basement of my parents' house. We're staying with them for this week. 
And I noticed it the other day, and, it's, and it says Pohl's Doghouse on it. And it was lovingly made by my grandfather, Ralph Diamond, who was a carpenter. And he made one for each of his children, I think, that one Christmas as a handmade gift. And so there's a little doggy house with a little hook, and then there's enough little dogs with their names on it for each individual in that family. So we had four. Since there were four in our family, others you know, had different numbers. And so I don't think my parents ever used it that much, but the joke was you do something bad and the little doggy gets put on the hook in the doghouse for the week, right? But I think that's how we think about God and his love. Sure, he'll legally forgive me. Maybe he'll call me his friend, but he's not going to use me again after that. I've blown it. But that's not what this passage teaches us. We might think that after such a shameful display of sin, rather than recommission us for his service, that we need to spend not a couple of days, but a couple of years in the doghouse, right? Look what Jesus is doing here. There's a lot more to learn from this passage, but you remember those threefold questions? Essentially, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Then feed my sheep, tend my sheep. I think that Peter really did love him at that point. That wasn't really the question, but Peter had something to learn. Let's pick it up in the last section of that. In verse, let me find it, 17, John 21, 17. He said to him the third time, Son, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then skipping down to the last part of 19. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And he kind of got distracted by John following along behind. And what did he say? That doesn't matter. You just follow me. Repeated that, follow me. So he got it. He's now being recommissioned. He, he wants you to, wants him to follow and because Jesus is our Lord and Master, we've got to remember that lesson too. We must follow. But who is Jesus? How do we follow him? Well, first he was this carpenter turned fisherman, right? And he was giving out the gospel, casting the net of salvation, the Holy Spirit causing men and women to repent and believe in him, young and old, from every nation. That was the first way that the disciples were to follow him and the way that we are to follow him too, casting that net, sharing God's message of salvation. But... Jesus had another aspect to his calling too, and to our calling, and what is that? He's also the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep, protecting them, saving them, caring them, nourishing them, preserving the flock forever. Not one of his own will be lost from his hand, right? So if Peter and we are to follow him, we must follow Jesus in both of those professions. Now, fishermen didn't use hooks in those days. They used nets more, right? And... Um, Shepherds, I think, used crooks, I think, at many times in history. And that, the origin of that English phrase, by hook or by crook, what does it mean? It means by any means possible, you know, maybe even by you know, ill-gotten means or something like that. Um, some think that John Wycliffe might have recorded the first use of it in the 1300s. But I've heard others tweak that phrase a little instead of by hook or by crook, thinking of it more like the Christian's calling is to live out God's mission by hook and by crook. We're to be both fishers of men and under-shepherds following our Savior in those two things, to care with skill for the, for the flock and to do the work of a fisherman to trap men and women alive for God. 
Certainly Peter had a special, specific calling to play in, the role of the king, in his role in the kingdom of God, but I believe that these passages teach that at some level, every person has this role. In our location, whether it's Chile or whether it's Williamsburg, whether it's, uh, you're a new graduate or newly retired, whatever you're doing, whether you're at home or class or on a sports team or at work or even surfing the internet, we are all to be involved in God's kingdom work by hook and by crook. But we can only follow him, can't we, if we've had this special encounter with him, learning to truly live in his presence, recognizing our constant need of Jesus as Lord and Master. Our good shepherd has given his life for the sheep, which we'll celebrate here in a moment at the Lord's table. And if you have trusted and trusted your life to him, then he forgives you. And you and I live in restored relationship and fellowship with him. And he commissions you and me for ministry in his power to be a shepherd, to be a fisherman, in his kingdom. That is his calling for us. Let's pray that we can do it by his grace. Pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, you are a master, you are a savior, you are our Lord and our God. You are beyond anything our minds can fathom that you would take crooked, broken people like us and not just save us, but keep us in your fold. We thank you for your love for us. We love you because you have first loved us. And out of that love, help us, Lord, to learn to live in your presence by faith. Help us, Lord, to daily remember our desperate need of you. And help us, too, Lord, to follow you in the fullness of your calling for us, both spreading the gospel message and caring for your body and everything in between, Lord. Make us your servants by your grace through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.